This week, we're going to celebrate the festival of Purim. And this is one of the last festivals, one of the last holidays added to the Jewish calendar. The only one that came post that is the holiday, the festival of Hanukkah, which came uh, several hundred years later. And it also has the Book of Esther, which is the last entrant into the canon of the Jewish Bible, uh, about uh, a decade or so after the story of Esther concluded and the Book of Esther was written, the 24 books of the Jewish canon were canonized and sealed in a way that nothing else could be subsequently added to the Jewish canon. So every year, Jews worldwide celebrate the holiday of Purim and its mitzvos, namely the mitzvah of reading the Megillah, reading the Book of Esther twice, once by night and once by day, having a festive meal by day, second mitzvah, giving gifts to the poor, and giving gifts to each other, mishloch manos, uh, giving food essentially to your neighbors and to your friends. What I want to offer today is a complete overview on the story of Purim, uh, the history, the batch story, uh, some of its very important themes and ways to make our celebration of Purim uh, more valuable and more meaningful. So the holiday of Purim and the story of Purim does not actually take place in the land of Israel. It takes place in the land of Persia. Now, how did the Jewish people end up in Persia? Of course, Moses brings them to the doorstep of Israel, and Joshua begins the initial conquest, and much of the land of Canaan is conquered, and the Jewish people settle in the land of their forefathers, in the land of what we call today the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. And they're there for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they don't last there forever. Of course, uh, the Jewish people reached their peak, their acme, during the reign of King David and King Solomon. But soon afterwards, there's a schism that breaks out. Essentially, it's a civil war between the northern tribes and their southern tribes. And eventually, these two Jewish kingdoms go in opposite ways. And the northern kingdom, they descend into idolatry. And eventually the ascendant kingdom of the Assyrians led by Sancher, if they come and they conquer those 10 northern tribes. And if you've heard the term, the 10 lost tribes, those refer to those 10 tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel that they were sent packing, they were sent into exile to parts unknown, and we don't really know where they are today. Are they still around? Do they get totally assimilated in their host nation? Where are they exactly it's a great mystery. Are they coming back? It's an unanswered question. The southern kingdom of Judah, will they prevail? In fact, one of the reasons why we're called Jews, Yehudim, is because we come from the tribe of Judah, or at least the, the kingdom that was called the kingdom of Judah, which included the land apportioned to the tribe of Judah. And the uh, assumption is that most of us who are not from the tribe of Levi, we're not Kohens or Levites, we are, in fact, from the tribe of Judah, most of us, even though there was already a, an amalgamation of all the different tribes were part of the kingdom of Judah, but it was primarily the, the tribe of Judah. So the Jewish nation is going to be following the story of, of the kingdom of Judah, of those people, since then. And so they're gone, 10 lost tribes, but soon after the 10 lost tribes are gone, the Assyrians are gone as well. And in their place we have the Babylonians. 
And the story of the Jewish people for thousands of years is having to contend with foreign rule. You know, we had self-governance for a long time. We had, of course, Moses and then Joshua in the period of the judges. There was hegemony over the land of Israel. But soon afterwards, we have foreign rulers. So it begins with the Assyrians, and eventually the kingdom of Judah is able to fend them off. And they're able to forestall foreign rule for a little bit longer. But the Babylonians come, and the Babylonians are going to conquer Judah. But but they conquer Judah in a way that they still allow the Jewish people to kind of live. And they allow the Jewish king to be like the puppet king, to be in charge and to be uh, the titular head of the Jews. But they don't really have sovereignty. They can't really uh, determine uh, their own destiny. Now, after the Babylonians are going to be gone, that's going to continue. There's going to be the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans and the Byzantines. And that's going to happen for a long time. That's going to be the state of the nation having to fend off or to contend with the various challenges inherent in having a foreign ruler controlling the land of Israel and the people of the Jewish people. Now, the people under the Babylonian rule, they launched several revolts. And this is kind of a thing that we do. We're very recalcitrant. We're very resistant to foreign authority for sometimes good reasons, sometimes bad reasons. But we're kind of a stubborn, stiff-necked people. That's kind of our thing. And we don't take it lightly to the notion of the fact that there's going to be foreign rulers. Problem was, the Babylonians, they were the most dominant empire in the world. Their king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was an absolute legend, a great warrior, and someone was able to consolidate tremendous kingdoms and empires into one unified rule. And one thing that you don't do is you don't launch a war against the United States military. And one thing you don't do in antiquity is you don't launch a revolt against the Babylonians, but the Jews did it anyhow. And the revolt was quashed. And the after effects of that were that the Babylonians said, okay, we, we have to prevent future revolts. And by doing that, and the way to do that is to take out the heart of the nation, the most talented people in the nation, the greatest Torah scholars, the greatest politicians, the richest people, all the people that could be at the head, that could rally the troops to revolt. We're going to take those people and we're going to bring them to Babylon where we can watch them very closely and bereft of leadership, the Jewish people are not likely to revolt again. That was the plan. So they take 10,000 of the best and brightest, the most talented Jews, included some some of the prophets and including within the ranks, the most, maybe the most important character in, or the second most important character in the Megillah story, that's Mordechai. He's also taken in chains to Babylon, and they're there, and they actually begin the Jewish civilization in Babylon once they get there. And that's actually going to work out. The Talmud tells us that this is fortuitous. You know, if you think, if you're in the land of Judah, and all the greatest people, all the greatest leaders, all the movers and shakers are suddenly taken out of the community, you might think it's a great tragedy. And in your narrow worldview, you're right. It's, it's a great tragedy. But God, of course, knows that in a decade or so, the entire nation is going to be sent into Babylon. And when they get there, they're going to find a flourishing Jewish community. Why? Because those 10,000 people that were sent earlier, they already established all the necessary infrastructure to absorb the masses of the Jewish prisoners, but eventually migrants 
and to be able to build a flourishing Jewish life in Babylon that essentially continued until the 1950s, 1960s. So the first revolt is quashed, and then 10 years later, the king Tzitkiyo, he makes a quite foolish move to launch a second revolt, and uh, this time things really do not go as planned. The Babylonians come and they quash and squelch the revolt with uh, ferocity, and there is a lot of bloodshed. The king has all his sons killed uh, before they gouge out his eyes. They bring him as a prisoner to Babylon. Of course, the temple is destroyed, and the entire nation is brought down to Babylon in chains. And this is one of the low points of our history. You know, we had, since the times of Moses, since the conquest of Israel, there's been ups and downs. And you read the book of Judges, the whole story is ups and downs. And of course, King David comes, and that's the greatest heights. And then you have the secession of the northern kingdoms, and that's a great low, and there's idolatry, and there's all these prophets trying to rein us in. So we've had the ebbs and flows of history, but this is really ground zero. This is the this, this is the worst that it's ever been. The nation is being led out of Israel as essentially prisoners. And of course, the famous psalm in, that we read often, uh, that we're sitting on the rivers of Babylon, and the, the, our captors are making us sing. And how did we fall so low? It's a great tragedy, uh, a point of decline of our history. And the Jews get to Babylon, but something remarkable happens. They experience a renaissance. Very quickly, they're allowed to kind of live and to flourish. And Jewish life really takes off in Babylon. They have institutions, they got schools, they got, think of a restaurant, they got it all. All right, everything you need. They don't have a temple, but they have maybe the best replacement. That's the synagogues, which was like a, considered a mini temple. And they start to adopt, you know, their new way of life. It's, it's not so bad, it turns out, in, in Babylon. And yes, of course, they remember Jerusalem and they, they pray to have it rebuilt. But, you know, things are really good. Economically, they're flourishing. Even spiritually, they got great Jewish leaders who are teaching them. And, and, and even politically, you know, the, the Jews are very talented and they, ascend the strata of society. And even Nebuchadnezzar has a, a Jewish advisor, Daniel, so talented. Nebuchadnezzar relies upon him. He asks him for his, for his advice. It's not that great because Daniel's also thrown into the lion's den. But overall, it's, it's pretty good. Yohanan and Michelle Vazari, another selection of, of very talented young Jews at the time who are brought on as advisors of the leaders of the Babylonians. And they too have their brush with Death, they're thrown into the fire because they refuse to bow down to the idols. They stay true to their belief and miraculously they survive. So things are good even though there is some sort of, 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 of tension. And the Jewish people can be out of Israel and out of the temples not going to be rebuilt for 70 years. And this is some important prophetic math to keep in mind here. You have Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah foretells that the Jewish people are going to have the temple destroyed. But 70 years later, the temple is going to be rebuilt. And one of the impetuses for the Purim story is that prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah that 70 years is going to be the maximum for the temple being destroyed. And the problem is, when exactly do you calculate that? Is it from the first revolt? 
or is it from the second revolt? And that's where things go awry in Ahasuerus' calculation. But regardless, during this interim period, during the 70-year period between the temples, between the first and second temple, first temple being destroyed, second temple being rebuilt, the Jewish people have many seismic shifts. Again, they're going to Babylon and a new way of life. Again, they have had a temple for more than 400 years. There's no temple anymore. And they have this renaissance in Babylon. But meanwhile, during this era of 70 years, there's also going to be a change, a massive change that's going to happen in the world stage. A coalition of Persians and Medes are going to unseat the Babylonians and begin to systematically dismantle the Babylonian way of life. And that, of course, is going to be led by Cyrus the Great, and he's going to be the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered great people and reshuffled them and forced them all to obey his gods. Cyrus is going to be the opposite. Cyrus is one of those uh, great non-Jewish heroes of Jewish history. If you open up the book of Ezra, for example, the book of Ezra, one of the books of the Jewish Bible, it begins with Cyrus's proclamation. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered people and relocated them. And he forced them to capitulate to his way of thinking, to his way of life, and to his theological deities. Cyrus is the opposite. He makes a proclamation, which is, by the way, found in both Jewish sources and non-Jewish sources, that all the conquered people can go back to their land. They go back to the land, not only that, they could live however they want to live. Essentially, reversing the ways of Nebuchadnezzar. He tells the Jewish people, go back to Israel. Go rebuild the temple. The vessels of the temple that were pilfered, I'm going to give them back to you. Moreover, I'm going to give you troops to guard you as you make the long journey from Babylon back to Israel. What an amazing offer. It sounds like we, we, we hit the jackpot, right? So you'd imagine all the Jews are lining up to get their visas stamped to go to this pilgrimage back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to the dream, back to rebuild the temple. And of course, it wasn't quite so. And this is just, it's, it's mind-boggling when you look at the big expanse of history, but it's understandable when you think about the people involved. You know, they, they kind of liked the way they lived. They enjoyed it. You know, their, their, their kids, they knew no other place besides for Babylon. This is where they felt comfortable. They became somewhat acculturated to the way of life. Not to say that they became assimilated, but this was where they were comfortable. And to go back and to try to reestablish a Jewish civilization, a Jewish commonwealth in Israel was something that was too much for most of the Jews. So barely 5% of the Jewish people, about 42,000 led by Zerubbabel, they say, okay, we're going to go back and, re- and reestablish. And Cyrus provides them the protection and they head back and they start rebuilding the second temple. They lay the foundation. It's a very joyous and momentous moment and the plans are all underway. And But of course, they get stalled. Why? Because the people, the indigenous people, the people that were living in the land of Israel – I wouldn't call them indigenous, but the people that had filled the vacuum, they were the Samaritans. And these weren't the good Samaritans. These were the bad Samaritans. They're called the Kuthites in Hebrew. And they were 
very opposed to the idea of the Jewish people reestablishing sovereignty and rebuilding the temple. In fact, for the duration of the Second Temple era, uh, one of the great thorns in the sides of the Jews is going to be the Kuthites, the, known as the Samaritans. So they see that the Jewish people are have all the construction materials that they're starting to go. They, they laid the foundation. They want to start building the Second Temple, and they freak out. They send a message back to Cyrus. Oh, these people are building a temple to oppose you. They're, they're going to launch another revolt. You have to stop them. And sadly, Cyrus halts the plans, pumps the brakes on the plans to rebuild the temple. So about 50 or so years after the temple is destroyed, the second temple project is aborted or it's, it's halted before completion. Now going back to Persia, there is a new king in town. According to Jewish sources, the son of Cyrus is in fact Ahasuerus, who is the king at the center of the Purim story. Who exactly he is? Is he Xerxes? Xerxes 1, Xerxes 2, Xerxes 10. No one really knows exactly which Xerxes he is, but most likely he is the king known to us as Xerxes. Uh, the, the, the book of Esther begins with a massive banquet that Ahasuerus commissions. It's a 180-day long banquet. And the, the descriptions of the lavishness so it's over the top. Everyone's served in gold chalices. Everyone's given wine that's older than them because the older that they, the older the wine, the better it is. And everything's gold. And all of the world's wealth essentially was coalesced in this one place because that's what happened. This one empire conquers everything and they conquer all the gold. So they have everything in, in, in Persia, in the city of Shushan, which is the uh, seat of the government. And, the Talmud tells us that during this 180-day banquet, Ahasuerus begins parading around the vessels of the temple, and he's celebrating because in his calculation, the 70 years have come and gone, and the temple has not been rebuilt. And the reason why his miscalculation is because he started counting from the first revolt, from the first exile, not from the second exile. According to Jewish chronology, the first temple was destroyed the year 422, and the second temple was built in 352, exactly 70 years later. Isaiah's prophecy came about perfectly. But about 10 years prior, 363 or so, Ahasuerus is under the impression that the prophecy has been proved to be untrue, and therefore he makes this massive celebration. After 180 days, there's seven additional days, and on the seventh day... Ahasuerus, he is hard, his heart is gladdened with wine and he asks his wife, his queen Vashti, to appear in front of the assembled with her crown. With her crown to the exclusion of any other garments. And quite understandably, she refused. And what to do now? She has disobeyed the king. He really likes her, but there's a problem and his, inv- his advisors tell him, listen, you know, she's She's disobeying her husband. What's going to be? All the women of the empire are going to hear that Vashti disobeyed her husband and they're going to begin to disobey their husbands and the feminists are going to be unleashed. We have to stop it. So they advise her, it's not just a crime against you, it's a crime against all the men of the entire kingdom and there's only one solution. We have to quickly execute her. And in his stupor, Ahasuerus signed off on that and Vashti was killed. And then he wakes up from a stupor and he fondly remembers his wife and he kind of misses her. 
And they say, okay, well, there's only one solution. We have to find someone who's even better than her. Let's make a search committee. Let's try to find a replacement for Queen Vashti. So they essentially send search parties throughout the entire world, the entire empire, to find all the beautiful girls and to bring them to Persia and to have them be part of this massive beauty contest to find out who's going to be the replacement for Vashti. And when they get there, they actually have to undergo 12 months of preparation, six months of cosmetics and six months of perfume just for that one-night audience with the king. Now, this might sound like a gold mine for someone you could, after, after all, be elevated to become queen. But in actuality, it was almost a, a death sentence. Why? Because what happens after that one night? If you're selected, you're the winner. You're the queen. Now, it doesn't necessarily have job security, as Vashti has shown. Uh, we don't know how long you're going to last. And the king maybe has a proclivities for wine and happy trigger fingers. But regardless, you could become queen. But what if you're not selected? Well, then you have to join the harem. You can't just go back to your house. You have to join the harem of the king. You're essentially put under lockdown. You cannot be with any other man unless the king calls you by name and says, I want that particular girl. You're kind of cordoned off from humanity forever. So the search party, they are almost, they're kidnapping essentially. All the girls that don't want to come, you have to kind of join because this is it. You, you know, you're, you're, you're part of this contest and therefore you're in whether you like it or not. Amongst the women that are selected to be part of this contest is one Jewish girl, a very beautiful young orphan by the name of Esther. And as you might imagine, there might have been a lot of Jewish orphans given the ups and downs of the times. She was adopted by her uncle Mordechai. And before she is snatched off, Mordechai gives her one piece of advice. And his piece of advice, he makes her promise that under no circumstances should she reveal her identity. And that is a question exactly what that means. Either it means that she shouldn't reveal that she's Jewish or that she shouldn't reveal that she comes from royalty. Esther, after all, is a direct descendant of King Saul, the first king of the Jews. And therefore, if the king finds out that she is a direct descendant of King Saul, her chances of being selected actually go up because she comes from great stock. She has royal pedigree. And therefore, in order to minimize her chance, she, what is a Jewish girl doing at the palace? It's not a right place for the Jewish, for a Jewish girl. Therefore, what's best is that she sh- should not be selected and therefore she shouldn't reveal her identity A, as a Jew, B, as a descendant of royalty. As things would happen, Esther charms everyone that she sees and she is selected as the queen. And this is already the second chapter of the book. And we have, there's no crisis yet. There's no extermination plot. That we haven't even met Haman, who is going to be the chief villain. And already we have Esther, the Jewish heroine. She's going to be ensconced as the queen. She's going to be at the epicenter of power before the threat even materializes. And this is a theme that we see in Jewish history, that the solution, the remedy, precedes the illness, precedes the danger. The danger is going to come chapter 3, but the remedy is already in place in chapter 2. A second thing that happens in chapter 2 is that Mordechai, he foils the plot 
to assassinate Ahasuerus. There were two of Ahasuerus's people who were discussing a plot to kill Ahasuerus. And because they were speaking in a foreign language, they assumed that Mordechai didn't understand them. But Mordechai, after all, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And one of the requirements of the Sanhedrin, to be part of the Sanhedrin, to be part of the Jewish Supreme Court, is to be fluent in all 70 languages. So they see this old Jew. What does he know? He doesn't understand this language. We're not talking about a Hebrew or Aramaic or like that. This is some sort of exotic language that they assume he didn't, he didn't know. They talk freely. And Mordechai is sitting there nonchalantly absorbing everything that they're saying. And he conveys the message to Esther through a back channel. Tell your husband that these two people, Bitson and Seresh, they want to kill him. The king investigates and discovers the plot. And the attempt is foiled. But they write in the book, in the archives of the kingdom of Persia and, and media, they write that Mordechai saved the king by revealing this plot. The Talmud tells us that Esther, when she told his messages to Ahasuerus, she made sure to say it in Mordechai's name. She could have very easily said, well, I discovered a plot. And she would be able to get all the rewards for that by saying, oh, look at me, I saved you. But instead, she said it in the name of the person who actually said it. She 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 attributed it to Mordechai, and as a result of that, she ended up bringing redemption. Because this episode, even though we don't it doesn't we don't get the payoff till much later, but this episode contributed towards the salvation that ensued in the Purim story. The Mishnah tells us that we have to be very careful to attribute things in the names of the people who said it, because just like Esther brought redemption via that method, we too to bring redemption if we attribute something in the name of someone who said it. Chapter 3 begins the danger. Haman is a direct descendant of Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. When Saul was instructed by Samuel to kill all the Amalekites, he did it, but he left a, the animals alive, and B, the kingdom of God alive long enough to, fa- to father a child. And therefore, the line of Amalek continued, and Haman is the Agagite. He's from Agag. He's, from, he's the heir to Amalek, and he is someone who has this deep-seated hatred for the Jewish people that's, so to speak, baked in, that's unchangeable, and he becomes the prime minister. So one of the themes that Haman institutes is that he makes everyone bow to him. Wherever he goes, everyone has to bow down to him. And there's only one person in the entire kingdom that refused to do that, and that's Mordechai. And Mordechai is a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And as we know, when Jacob reunited with his brother Esau, he had 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter, but Benjamin had not yet been born. And therefore, Benjamin was the only one that didn't bow down to Esau, the father of Amalek, and therefore the descendants of Benjamin have the power within them to resist, to have the temerity to resist the instruction of bowing down to Amalek because of his backstory. So Mordechai refuses to bow. So when Haman sees Mordechai not bowing down to him, his anger is aroused and his pride is, is wounded, but he's so prideful, he doesn't want to just kill Mordechai. I don't want to just kill Mordechai. It's beneath me to just take on him as if he's a equal to me. I'm going to destroy his whole people. I'm going to destroy the whole Jewish people. And he goes to Ahasuerus and he tells Ahasuerus, listen, there's, there's a small nation. They're scattered. They don't really like you so much. I want to know if I can kill them all. 
But you may say, hey, there's tax revenue that I stand to lose. I'll give you 10,000 silver coins, and that will more than compensate for the loss of tax revenue. And Ahasuerus tells him, listen, you know what? Do what you want with these people, and I got it covered. You don't have to even give me the 10,000 coins. Haman makes a lottery to find out what date is the most auspicious date to kill the Jewish people. It comes out to the 13th day of Adar, or the month of Adar, the last month of the Jewish calendar year. And it is interesting that the word for lottery, for spinning the dice, is Pur. And the reason why the festival is called Purim is because of that spinning of the dice of Haman to determine the month that the Jewish people are going to be killed. Of course, that didn't work out like that. But it is kind of interesting, one of the major themes to figure out, like, what, what what's the message by renaming the festival Purim after that point in the story. So letters are sent throughout the entire kingdom that on the 13th day of Adar, which is in a few months hence, all the Jewish people are fair game. They're not going to be protected by the king. And they can all be killed in all the provinces. And the Jews really have nothing to do about that. Uh, they can't stop it. And they're plunged into mourning. Everyone's praying. Uh, there's a sense of dread. And what's going to be? Everyone's – they're wearing sackcloths. And they're mourning, essentially, because they know that there's this pending date of extermination. And Mordechai sends a message to Esther. He tells her, listen, you know, you're the queen. Go do something. And she responds to him, well, how can I walk in to the king's chambers? I wasn't invited to come. And if someone comes in uninvited, they're killed. So in verse 12 of chapter 4, we read Mordechai's response. When Esther's words were told to him that she stared to go into the king because she wasn't invited, he sent back to her, do not imagine in your soul that you'll be able to escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the Jews. You think, oh, you know what? The Jews will die, but you're a queen. You'll, you'll, You'll survive. For if you persist in keeping silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. If you're quiet, if you don't take a stand, if you don't try to save the Jewish people, the Jewish people will still survive but it'll survive from a different place. And what's going to be while you and your father's house will perish? You think that keeping quiet is going to, is your ticket to freedom. Actually, it's the opposite. The Jewish people will survive, but you will be destroyed. And who knows whether it was just for such a time as this that you attained the royal position. Who knows the reason why the Almighty made you queen over the thousands of other gr- girls who were candidates? The reason why is specifically and precisely for this moment. You were positioned because the Almighty selected you to be the one to play the role. But if you don't do it, someone else will play the role, but you will be destroyed. So Esther agrees. She's going to go into the king and she's going to lobby him to save, to spare her people. Provided that the entire Jewish nation has a three-day fast day and prayer in the success of that mission. She fasts. All her people with her fast. Mordechai fasts. The entire nation fasts. Everyone fasts for three days beforehand in prayer and in supplication for the success of the mission. In fact, we have a fast day the day before Purim called Ta'anit Esther, the fast of Esther, which is related to the fast day that was celebrated or that was marked in the Purim story. She walks into the king's chamber after three days of fasting and the king is happy to see her. He extends his gold scepter to her, and he asks her, what do you want? Anything that you want, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it all to you. Talmud explains to us 
that he's hinting, you know, half the kingdom, there's some things he won't do. He won't let her rebuild the temple. Half, half the kingdom, yes, but anything more than that, no. There's something that he's not willing to allow. So she says, listen, all I want is, I, w- I want a banquet. Let's make a banquet. You know, me and you and Haman together. Let's celebrate. And then by the banquet, I'll tell you what I want. They make the most lavish banquet. Incredible, incredible opulence. And by the banquet, Ahasuerus says, again, okay, up to half the kingdom, whatever you want. What is it that you, what is it that you're, my desire? Tomorrow I have another banquet. Again, me, you, and Haman. And incidentally, the Talmud tells us 12 different reasons why Esther invited Haman to the party, to the banquet. Uh, one of the reasons why is that, well, so no one would suspect that she's actually Jewish. Again, she has still maintained her identity private. No one knows where she's from. She's a great mystery. If she invites Haman, I was like, oh, she, there's no way that she would invite the, 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 the most hated individual in the eyes of the Jews. It must be that she's not Jewish, not keep their guard down. But in addition, very interestingly, the Jewish people are watching the whole story. They know that they have this individual, this fifth column. They have the, the, the inside man, the inside woman, who's going to help them. And then they see that she's inviting Haman. Is she one of us or is she one of them? Which one is she? They're not relying on her anymore. What do they do? They pray. Esther did not want the Jewish people to rely on her. And therefore, she invited Haman. They're not relying on her anymore. They're praying to God and that will help the success of the mission. Meanwhile, Haman is on top of the world. He was invited to the first banquet with Esther. Just him, Akashverosh, and Esther. Amazing. And Tamari's invited again. He's on top of the world. And then he's walking home. And who does he see? He sees everyone bowing down to him. And Mordechai, defiantly, is not bowing down. And he's consumed with anger. He can't even wait until the time to kill all the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. He wants to kill Mordechai right away. He gets home. He tells his wife and his children the whole story. I got all everything, but nothing's worth anything to me. I have all the gold, all the power, all the influence. I got everything. And every time I see Mordechai, it's not nothing is worth it to me. It angers me so much. He tells him, listen, you know, what are you doing? Build a gallows. Go hang him and be finished with it. So he builds the gallows and he goes to lobby the king to allow him to hang Mordechai. So this is in the interim. And between the banquet one and banquet two, Haman builds the gallows and heads to the king to go ask him if he could hang Mordechai on the gallows. Of course, the great irony is that uh, someone will be hung on that gallows. It's not going to be Mordechai. It's going to be Haman. Meanwhile, the king is having a bad dream. And he's tur- tossing and turning in bed. And he's thinking... Is this a palace coup? Esther is inviting Haman, and there's, there's all this mystery behind it. The, the first banquet, the second banquet, are they trying to kill me? What's going to be? He is consumed with uncertainty. And then he says, well, it must mean that someone has beef with me. Someone did something good for me, and I didn't reward them, and therefore no one's telling me the plot. If people were incentivized to reveal the plot to me, then they would have revealed it to me. It must mean that they're not incentivized, and therefore no one's telling me about what this, this wicked plan to go destroy me. So he calls the official archivist of 
the kingdom to go read me the story to find the guy who was not properly recompensed for what they did for me. And the official comes and he reads the story, Mordechai saved the king from the plot of Bishan and Sarah. And what was his reward? How much gold did he get? How much power did he get? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Okay, we have to find out quickly how to reward him fairly for his actions. As the king is trying to figure out what to do, Haman knocks on the door. And Haman is coming to ask the king to hang Mordechai on the gallows. But before his chance to talk, the king asks him a question. Okay, there's someone I need to honor. But I want to come up with the most extravagant honor that's possible for this person. So Haman's like, of course he's talking about me, right? There's no one else that he could possibly be referring to. It's not possible. So he comes up with the most lavish, most imaginative honor. The person that you want to honor, he tells Ahasuerus, he should be paraded throughout the streets on the horse that was the king's, with the king's greatest official leading the horse, proclaiming in front of all as the person who's being honored is bedecked in the garments of the king, proclaiming to all, so shall be done to the man to whom the king wants to give honor. Ahasuerus says, you're an incredible advisor. I really needed that. And I want you, because you're my greatest official, I want you to go to Mordechai. And Mordechai, he saved the king. I want you to go give him this exact honor. And don't take a single item off the list that you proposed. So Haman has no choice. He's got to go to Mordechai. He goes to Mordechai. Mordechai is fasting. So he's very weak. So he gets Mordechai dressed in the king's garments. And then Mordechai tells him, I'm too, I can't swing up on the horse. I need you to bow, bend down so I could lean on top of you. So you could boost me on top of the horse. He has no choice. He's got to do it. Mordechai gives him an added kick on the way up and he's paraded throughout the streets. And Haman is forced the ultimate indignity of having to take his arch rival and parade him throughout the streets and to announce and to call out, this is someone who the king wants to give honor to. Meanwhile, Haman's daughter sees the procession and she sees this, this one individual on the horse and he looks resplendent and then there's the poor guy is pulling the horse, leading the horse and announcing it must mean, she says, maybe like her father, that Haman is being led by Mordechai and this is an incredible moment. So she takes the trash, the trash and dumps it on the guy who's pulling the uh, horse and then she gets the closer look and she says, oh no, it was, it was her daddy. It was exactly the opposite. You know, she thought that Mordechai was leading Haman. It was Haman leading Mordechai and she just dumped all the trash. She was consumed with guilt and with sadness. She jumped off the roof and she dies. So Haman has now had his pride irreparably wounded. He is covered in garbage. He smells and his daughter is dead. And he gets back home and he wants to take a shower and they come to him from the king's officials. It's time for the second banquet. Everyone's waiting for you. You have to come. I need a shower. Too late. You got to come. And he's ushered in, all stinky, all smelly, to the second banquet. And at that banquet, Ahasuerus asks Esther, okay, what's the request? How to have the kingdom? That's our deal. And she says to him quite simply, all I want is my life. That's it. I want my life, the life of my people. <laughs> Who wants to attack you and your people? This guy. Haman. And 
The king is all flustered by this. He goes outside to get some fresh air to figure out what to do. And someone else comes and says, oh, you see those gallows, those 15, 50 cubit gallows? That's the gallows that Haman constructed to kill Mordechai who saved the king. And on an instant, the king says, okay, we're going to hang Haman on the gallows. And the story turns around quite uh, dramatically. Mordechai replaces Haman as the prime minister. The decree is amended. No longer will it be that the Jewish people are fair game. Now it's the opposite. The Jewish people could defend themselves and they could kill all the anti-Semites. And they did, indeed they do. All the people that had been planning for that great massacre of the Jews have now exposed themselves as horrific, brutal anti-Semites. And the Jews killed them. And in the city of Shushan, they killed the 500 people who were the enemies of the Jews. And the 10 sons of Haman also died. And on the 14th day, another 300 enemies were killed. And the following day, the day when there was finally peace and serenity. So there's the 13th day, the first day, which would turn from, from, from negative to positive. The 14th day, the additional day. And then the day afterwards, which was the day of, of peace, where all the enemies of the Jews were destroyed. Relief had been obtained and peace and serenity reigned. And as a result, the 14th day of Adar was made into a festival, the day of Purim, with the four mitzvahs of the day to read the Megillah, to give the gifts to the poor, to send food to your friends and neighbors, and to eat a festive banquet. The day beforehand was instituted as the fast of Esther. And then you have the, depending upon which city you live in, that's the day of your Purim. So if you live in a city a regular city, it's the 14th day of Adar. Whereas if you live in a walled city, like the city of Shushan or like the city of Jerusalem, for example, then you would celebrate it on the 15th day. And this is uh, one of the only, this is the only time really in the Jewish calendar that a festival is celebrated in, on different days depending upon where the people are located. So, so that's the story. What I want to do is dig in a little bit into the themes of the story and to try to see how they play out on the day of Purim. So first of all, the Ram tells us that in the times of the Messiah, we're only going to have the books of the Torah and the book of Esther. Meaning that because the Jewish people will, will repent, there's not going to be a need for the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, all these books that try to urge us to repent. We don't need them because we'll already have it without it. But the story of, of Purim, the story of the book of Esther, that story will never lose its relevance to us. So that's an interesting introduction to the themes, that there's something in this story, in this festival, that is eternal and that will outlast everything. Now, in addition, the book of Esther is not called the book of Esther in, in Hebrew. It's called the Midilat Esther. And the word Midilah means scroll, but also means the revelation. And the word Esther, of course, means Esther, it's a name, but Esther also means hidden. So you could read the book, you read the word Merilat Esther as the scroll of Esther, you could also read it as the revelation of the hidden. So one of the major themes of the festival is the idea that the true nature of the story is hidden. And when we read the story, we're trying to decipher, we're trying to uncover and unearth the actual hidden story, the real story behind the story, the story that's actually hiding behind the veneer of the book. 
Now, unlike all the 23 other books of the Bible, the book of Esther does not contain the name of God even once, which is very surprising. It's a, it's a book of Jewish literature to have the name of God on every page like you have in all the other books, but it doesn't. And the reason why our sages explained to us is that God and God's hand, God's manipulation of the events, that was all hidden. That's all embedded in the story that could be very much understood as a natural set of coincidences. Everything that happened, all the miracles of Purim really aren't miracles if viewed in isolation. Right? It was very reasonable for Achashverosh to be angry at Vashti and to kill her. It was very reasonable for him to institute a beauty contest to find a replacement. Well, Esther was very beautiful. It's quite natural she would be selected. Mordechai, well, he knew those languages, therefore he discovered the plot. Every, every juncture of the story could have happened like that. But when you view the story from beginning to end, it's quite clear that you see God's hidden hand arranging, coordinating, orchestrating every aspect of the story. In fact, our sages tell us that the name of God is found in the book of Esther. And it's found many, many, many dozens of times, but it's hidden. Why? Because you'll find, this is an interesting thing, you'll find that the first letter of four successive words are Yudkevavke, which is the name of God, the ineffable name of God. The last letters of four consecutive words, name of God, Skipping certain intervals, the name of God. There's, in fact, hundreds of times in the book of Esther where the name of God is embedded, it's hidden. It's there, but you don't see it upon initial glancing. In addition, our sages tell us that every time it says the, the word Hamelach, the king, it's a reference to God. Every time it says the word Hamelach Achashverosh, the king Achashverosh, it's referring to Achashverosh. In fact, my wife told me that they had a project in school that they had to discover, they had to, every time, the dozens upon dozens of times says the word Hamelch, the king, why it's a reference to God. And every time it says Hamelch HaChashverosh, to find out why it cannot be referring to God. So in fact, God is playing a role, but it's a hidden role in the story. And part of the insight, well, one of the central themes of the festival is to try to draw out God's hand in that story, but also to take that theme to our lives to try to find the places where God is involved in our lives. You know, we have that festival of, of Pesach upcoming, and there, there's all these miracles that are undeniable. There are all these, what we would call revealed miracles, splitting of the sea and the ten miraculous plagues, and the eating of the manna, right? These are non-stop litany of miracles that are undeniable, that are revealed miracles. And Purim's the opposite. You have all these miracles, but all the miracles are hidden. Perhaps we could say that the reason why Purim kind of has a, even a, a more lasting, a more p- impactful impact is that this is a much more relevant idea to us in our lives. You know, we don't live in a time where there is consistent, ongoing, revealed miracles, but there are consistent, ongoing, hidden miracles, just like the time of the Purim story, the time of Esther. And as a result, the theme of Purim is very valuable for us today to try to discover God from his hand that's playing a role everywhere in our lives, every single day there's hidden miracles. We have to try to draw that out like we did in the Purim story. Now, it is interesting that the name of the holiday is called Purim with respect to the lottery of, of Haman. The reason why the name is of the festival is Purim is because of 
the throwing of the dice. Now, if you were to say to me, you know, okay, we're going to name this festival, you would say, well, let's, let's name it after the revelation, after, after the salvation. Let's name it after the high parts of the story. Why after the lowest parts of the story? So there's maybe several answers to this question. Number one, this really highlights the difference between Amalek, their ideology, and our ideology. We say that Amalek, as represented by Haman, they're the precisely the opposing force, the polarizing force of the Jewish people. We believe that everything is orchestrated by God. They believe that everything is orchestrated by chance. So what does Haman do? We have to spin the dice to find a lottery to find out which day to be used. That's an Amalekite attitude. What do we say? We say, no, that there was nothing random in the whole story. And even the things that he thought were random were actually not random. And therefore, we call the holiday Purim to remind us that even when events around us seem to be happening at random, you have a lottery, God is still the ultimate controller of fate. He's the ultimate puppeteer behind the scenes. You know, one of the customs of Purim is to wear a mask. Why do we wear a mask? A mask demonstrates that there's something behind the scenes. There's something that's being disguised. There's something which is masquerading as one thing, but really something else. That's really the essence of the story of, of Purim. We have a, a series of coincidences, but really it's God manipulating the whole thing, and God is behind it all. I want to add that there is a, a statement from the Kabbalists, a very powerful and provocative, I would say, statement about the festival of Purim. There is another festival that has a very similar name, and that's Yom Kippur. Because the full name of Yom Kippur is not Yom Kippur, it's Yom Kippurim. And the word ke, or the, the prefix ke, means like. So the Kabbalist, that Rizal tells us, that when we say Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippur, what we're in, effect, we're in effect saying is that Yom Kippur is Kippurim, is like Purim. Which implies that which one of them is greater? Is Purim greater or is Yom Kippur greater? So when we say the Yom Kippur is light Purim, that implies the Yom Kippur, that the Yom Kippur is light Purim, it is secondary to Purim. Purim is greater than Yom Kippur, which is an astonishing statement, though, like this one-line statement from the Arizal. Yom Kippur, it's almost as holy as Purim. Now, if you could concoct in your mind two opposing days, you can't come up with anything more dissimilar than Purim and Yom Kippurim. There's a mitzvah of the day of, of Purim to have a festive meal. And of course, on Purim, we don't need anything. There's a lot of celebration, uh, a, a lot of joy that we have uh, on Purim. And on Yom Kippur, it's a very serious day. It's a day of repentance, a day of prayer. It's a day of, of rejection, so to speak, of the physical world. And then here, it's still by food and eating and, and drinking. We're supposed to get drunk on Purim. You can't think of it more of more different days, yet we say that they're really the same. So part of the themes of, 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 of Purim is to understand the power of the day and the fact that it has some overlap with Yom Kippur and the fact that it's even more holy than Yom Kippur. So it is interesting that there is a lottery that we do on Yom Kippur as well. And that is when the high priest, he has the, they have two identical goats. One of them will be offered as a sacrifice and one of them is going to be the scapegoat that's going to be chucked off the mountain. And how do you determine which one's which? Well, it's a lottery. It's chance, right? It's the same kind of thing. It's like a choice without without reason. 
And the theme of that is maybe similar to the theme of Purim on many different levels, but maybe on one of the levels is the fact that on Yom Kippur, we're telling God, you know, even if there's no reason, even if we're not justifiably worthy of being saved, save us anyhow. Undeserving atonement. That's what we want. And in Purim, we say maybe the same thing. You know, the Jewish people, there was a reason why they had the specter of Haman's genocidal plans above them. Talmud tells us that they that they did sin. They did bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idols. They did participate in Achashverosh's banquet. They were guilty. And why were they saved? No reason. God loved them. God loved their forefathers. It's almost like random. And there's like a randomness to the story, which is the positive randomness, almost like the way you foil the enemy. You take the negative randomness and say, okay, let's let's have randomness on the positive side. Uh, Haman says to us, we're going to destroy them for no reason. And God says, oh, I'm going to save them for no reason as well. In fact, one of the laws of Purim, which is unique to all Jewish festivals and all Jewish days, is that whoever extends out their hand, you give them. Which means normally if someone asks for charity, you first are required to investigate if whether it's a, it's a good charity or not. So it's an obligation. There's one day a year that you're not allowed to inquire. That's that's Purim. If someone is deserving, they get. If someone is undeserving, they also get. The same kind of ideal, the same kind of theme, that whether you earn it or whether you don't earn it, you get it. That's the, It's almost like random. What happens to Yom Kippur? we got to do repentance. You do repentance, you get atonement. You don't do repentance, you don't get atonement. That's Yom Kippur. It's a day of atonement. It's a day of repentance, but the atonement is contingent upon the repentance. So if you repent, you get atoned. If you don't repent, sorry, you got a luck. What happens on Purim? It's also a day of atonement. It's also a day God forgave us and God allowed us to be spared, to have a salvation. Did we deserve it? No, we didn't. And we got it anyhow. And therefore for us today, we can experience the power of Purim to receive repentance like Yom Kippur, but unlike Yom Kippur, even if we don't deserve it, even if we don't repent, we still are granted atonement. Now, the Talmud tells us that the day of Purim, the changes that resulted from this experience actually affected the Jewish people's relationship with God, but also the relationship with Torah. How so? At Sinai, we accepted the Torah, and we did it under duress, says the Talmud. Why? Because the Almighty took the mountain and wielded it above us like a barrel and says, if you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to crush you to death. And the Jewish people, of course, accepted the Torah. We had a proverbial gun to our heads. Whereas on Purim, in the aftermath of the great miracle, we were so enthralled by it that we reaffirmed our commitment. We renewed our vows to the Almighty and to his Torah. And this is, I think, another central theme of Purim in that despite the fact that the miracle was hidden, we were extracted from peril in a very different way than we were from the Exodus. But when the Exodus happened, the supernatural plagues, the supernatural splitting of the sea, the supernatural manna from heaven, those revealed miracles yielded accepting God out of fear. The relationship that that spawned was one of seriousness and, and dread and fear. Whereas the other kind of miracle, the miracle where it's hidden and we have to kind of extract that, that actually engenders a relationship of love. 
So that's almost the counterweight. It's similar to the idea that we said about, about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is called the Yom Hanor, the day of dread, you know, the day of, so the day of, it's had a lot of different names, but it's a, it's a holy day, it's a pure day, but it's also a very serious day. And maybe the, 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 the essence of the power of Purim is that the relationship that it fosters, meaning that these kinds of miracles and this kind of solution, this kind of relationship fosters is a relationship of love as opposed to fear. And that's a greater, more lasting mode of relationship. And in fact, you know, the mitzvos really are all about love. How so? We read the Megillah and we remember how God saved us. Well, that makes us love God. We give gifts to the poor people. Well, that makes us love even the people that are less fortunate us in society. We give gifts to our neighbors and friends. That's love for the people. We have a magnificent banquet. Well, that's love for the body, right? The body is also participating. Unlike Yom Kippur, it's just for the soul. Purim is the body is also happy. And then we get drunk. And the Talmud tells us that we get drunk until we don't even realize who the villain is. Why would you do that? Well, there's one person who remains unloved, and that's the wicked one. And even they need a dose of love on, on, on Purim. So we get so drunk, we forget who's the who's the righteous one, who's the villain. We don't even know, and we're able to love everyone equally. And that's kind of, again, the, the counterweight or the, the balance between Purim and Yom Kippur, whereas you know, Yom Kippur is entirely for the soul. It's almost as if Purim is entirely for the body, but that relationship that kind of using your body, using your real world, or at least what you view as your real, real world as the means to connect to God, that is a very powerful and lasting one. Now, the way to utilize Purim, it's a very important day not to miss out. And like we said earlier, when someone asks for charity on, on, on Purim, you give it to them whether they deserve it or not, that applies to us as well. When we ask what we want from God, every day of the year, God says, well, are they worthy? Do they deserve it? Do they ask for too much? Do they ask for too little? How do they ask? All those questions are posed when we ask God for things that we want and we need the rest of the year. But just like the power of Purim is to give even those who don't deserve, it's to have random goodness, it's to have a certain largesse, a certain overwhelming love and joy that extends even to to God and how he addresses our requests. And therefore, on, on Purim, we're supposed to pray and we're supposed to ask for things because the day, the power of the, of, of the prayer on Purim is almost unparalleled throughout the year. We know that there was one day a year that the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies. That was Yom Kippur. And in fact, the Torah tells us that the rest of the year, no one's allowed to walk in there. If you walk in there, you're going to die because you're not invited. What happened on Purim? What happened in the story of Esther? What was that one juncture in the story where everything changed? When Esther bucked the trend or bucked the rules and illegally walked into the king's chamber. And that's the power of the day. The power of the day is unlocked by that particular episode. Just like Esther walked into the king's chambers unannounced, uninvited, illegally, today, when we celebrate Purim, we too can, like like Yom Kippur, when the, the, the high priest goes to the Holy of Holies, he's invited then. Purim, we're uninvited. But we're still allowed to walk in to the Holy of Holies, and the power that we have on Purim 
is equal or or is parallel or is somewhat similar to the power of the prayer of Yom Kippur. What, what our sages are telling us is that the power of Purim is to accomplish the same kind of accomplishments that we have on Yom Kippur, but in an easier fashion, even for uninvited, even if it's not the right time, even for, for undeserving, to have that same kind of influence. So I want to kind of bring this home with addressing one of the maybe the most unusual parts of the festival, and that is that we're told to get so smashed drunk, to get so blackout drunk, that we don't know the difference between Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed. In fact, it's brought down a halacha. It's a halacha in Jewish law and the Shulchan Aruch. It's codified. It's real. And it's such an unusual thing. You know, we're the most cerebral people, the people of the book. Everything doesn't make sense. Everything doesn't be logical. And then the, the, the two characters that can be more different, Haman and Mordechai, if they get so drunk, we don't even know this, the difference between the two. It's a very bizarre mitzvah that we're told. And in fact, the Talmud, the Book of Megillah tells us a very strange story. It says that Rabbah, one of the sages of the Talmud, and Rabzeira, another one of the sages of the Talmud, they had a Purim festival together. And what did they do? They got drunk. Well, what do great Torah scholars do when they're, when, when they're drunk? They study Torah. The Talmud tells us that when two Torah scholars, real genuine Torah scholars study, they they disagree. It gets uh, somewhat vocal. And they start hating each other. And they want to kill each other. Because each one's so invested in their side. But then when they finish studying, then they love each other. That's, that's what the Talmud says. But what happened over here? What happened was the Talmud says that they're both drunk and they start studying Torah. And then Rabbah actually gets so angry at his opponent, he kills him. And then the next day... He wakes up from his stupor and he finds out what happened. So he starts praying and his friend is revived. That's the story of the Talmud. The next year, Rabbah comes to his friend Rabzeir and says, you know what? Why don't you come back again? <laughs> Why don't we have another Purim celebration together again? He says, well, yeah, I'm going to find different accommodations this year. Who knows if the miracle will happen a second time? That's the story of the Talmud. So there's, of course, a few ways to take the story. Uh, for one, we could highlight the fact that, you know, look at the power of prayer. prayer. Prayer was able to resurrect even the dead. Was he fully dead? Maybe he was, uh, he was on life support, whatever it was. But the, the, the prayer was efficacious in resurrecting the deceased rabbi. Others have suggested that maybe the lesson is don't, you know, drink a lot, but don't drink too much that you get out of control. That's another way to view that, uh, this story. But I, uh, I read yesterday a novel interpretation. It's so novel and so clever, I have to repeat it to you. The word Rabbah, that was one of the names of one of the rabbis. His name was Rabbah. And the other, na- the other rabbi, his name was Rabzeira. But in, in Aramaic, the word Rabbah means large. And the word Zeira, Zeira, means small. So I read that interpretation is that Rabbah, the big one, or the large, slaughtered the small. And the explanation is that there's two philosophies in how to progress spiritually. You take big, giant leaps for mankind, and then there's the small steps for man, right? There's like small steps that eventually over a long time will accumulate towards a big change, or these huge leaps, quantum leaps, in one fell swoop to accomplish a lot. 
generally we are cautioned to take small steps. You try to climb too many runs on the ladder, you'll fall down. That's what generally how we're, how we are counseled in our growth. On Purim, Rabba slaughtered Zeira. On Purim, the big steps, well, that slaughters the small steps. Why? Purim's such a powerful day. It's like Yom Kippur, that the, the, the essence of the day, the power of the day is to accomplish a lot in very little amount of time. That's uh, another way to maybe understand this idea or this story and what it means for us on, 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 on Purim. There was a uh, amazing story told over about the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. There was a drought and the people came to the great sage, the great Sadiq, and they said to him, okay, could you pray that it rains? And the Baal Shem Tov said to his students, I can't, I can't pray. I can't, this, this decree I can't cancel. I can't intervene in the heavenly realms on this particular decree. But there is one person that could. You go ask him to pray for you and then the rain will, will commence. But you should know that he's, he's a drunk. And therefore you have to find an opportune time where he's sober for a little bit for him to, to pray for you. So they travel to that place and they find this Jew and he's always drunk, always. And they're waiting for an opportunity to ask him to pray for them. And one morning they're there and they see him wake up and he has like a sliver of sobriety. So, but he goes right away to reach for the bottle. So they stop him. Stop, stop. We need you to pray for me. What? Me to pray for you? Looks at these, like these students, these look like really important people. And he's like a drunk. He's a low life. So he says, you must have the wrong guy. It's not, I'm not, I'm not the right man. Look, look at me. I'm a drunk. I'm a degenerate. They say, no, no, no. The Baal Shem Tov said, you, you should pray for us. You'll, you'll get rain. Ah, can't be. It must be a mistake. No mistakes. Can't be. No mistakes. So the man raised his hands and he prayed and right away it started to rain. So of course they come back to the Baal Shem Tov. Great. We have rain, but what's the deal? You can't pray to get the rain. This person prays to get the rain, and right away the rain happens. How is this even possible? So the Baal Shem Tov said, they said, well, this man, you met him. You see, he's not a special guy. He's a, he's a sinner. He's a hedonist. But there was one time that he had assembled a large amount of money, and he was going to use this money for a grave sin. And as he was traveling to go to do the sin, he saw a family sitting on the side of the road crying. And he stopped and he asked them, what happened? And they said to him, listen, we're poor and we couldn't pay our rent and we're kicked out of our house and now we're homeless. So his mercy was aroused and he asked them, well, how much money do you need? And they said to him, and it turns out the exact amount of money that he had with them was the exact amount of money they, they, that they needed. So in this act of mercy, he gave them all the money as a gift and he went back home. So the Baal Shem Tov tells the students, he says, like this mitzvah, like it created a commotion in heaven. This is, of course, the Hasidic way of telling the story, right? In heaven, all the angels, is, everyone's trying to figure out there's a tumult in heaven. What, what to do? What an amazing mitzvah that he did. And they decided in heaven that he's going to be given the absolute keys to prayer. Whatever he prays for, it's going to get. He's going to have this amazing power to influence the world, whatever he wants to pray for will indeed happen. But after all, he's a sinful person. 
and he may use this power for negative. So we're going to add another clause to it. The clause that we're going to add is that he's always going to be drunk. And therefore, he'll have the power of prayer, but he won't be using it because he'll always be drunk. And he'll not going to have any time. He's always going to be drunk. He'll never be sober. And he's not even going to be aware of this this power of prayer. And that, that's the way to kind of have the balance. But the Baal Shem Tov, he knew about this, and therefore he was able to get this story. That, that's the story that's told. So one of the other Hasidic rabbis said, he said, that's Purim. Purim, we're like that guy. We have tremendous powers of prayer. Whatever we pray for, we could, we could get. And there's many, many sources that talk about whatever you pray for in Purim, you can get. Again, you're undeserving, you extend your hand, God says yes. But in order to kind of not make us realize that, the mind says, okay, we can get drunk on Purim. Get super duper drunk, and that way you won't even realize your power, and that way you'll, you're going to conceal the gift. We're like that guy. We're, we're like, we have all this power in Purim, and we have to know that we need to use it. And that's maybe a way to understand this idea of getting drunk on Purim. It's a way for us to kind of, to make it fair with so much ability. We're, we're, we're like the high priest going into the temple. Like we, even though we're not invited, but we're still allowed to come in. That's the power of the day, but it is detracted, so to speak, by making us focus on all the other things. It's a very busy day. Got all these misfos to do. And our objective is to not lose this power, to not be redirected, so to speak, to not be distracted by this, by, by, by this day and, and utilize it and pray for everything, the things that we need and the things that we want. Maybe another theme that we could share about drinking on Purim. And that is that on Purim, we accept the Torah again. But unlike at Sinai, we accepted it out of fear. We accepted it out of love on Purim. Maybe we could argue that the mode of an individual accepting the Torah is someone who is like a drunk. How so? The very nature of Torah is that it's it's God telling us what he wants of us. That's the, that's the essence of Torah. The essence of Torah is us kind of surrendering our own intellect and opening up to, to what God wants of us. The opposite of Torah is where I have my own interests and my own agenda, and I try to jimmy that into Torah. I say, I want the Almighty to be subject to my will. That's not Torah. Torah is where I subject myself to his will. And what happens when someone gets drunk? They lose their mind, essentially. They don't have these inhibitions, the normal filters they seize operating. And what do I have? All I have is I don't have no opinion. I can't form a cogent perspective on anything. And I have lowered myself. I've surrendered my perspective because now my perspective is out, I'm drunk. That's the attitude for, for our reacceptance of Torah. Once I'm, I realize that I, I don't have the powers, that is the attitude of someone who is primed to reaccept the Torah. So those are some of the things that we have on Purim. It's the time of celebration of our triumph over Amalek. It also is a clarion call to remind us that we still have to stamp out that little bit of Amalek that exists within us and within the world. Our job is not yet complete. This was, of course, a great conquest over Amalek, but there's still more work for us to do. It's a day of prayer that is answered. 
that is not a returned empty-handed. It's a day of Torah. It's a day of love for our fellow man, love for ourselves, love for the body. It's this counterweight to, to, to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is like all for God. This is all for man. Our soul is really happy on Yom Kippur. Our body is really happy on Purim. But both of those are, are different ways to try to connect to Hashem and to deepen our relationship with Him. With Him, let us hope that we have a joyous and uh, uh, delightful uh, Purim, and uh, hopefully we could internalize its messages and be impacted and take that great quantum leap in advancing our spiritual life this Purim, and using that as a stepping stone to our next great festival, and that, of course, is the next one of, of the redemption, and that is Pesach, which is coming upcoming in a month.